0: our children are invited to continue their time of worship together. And as they go, will you pray with me? God of grace and mercy, meet us here in this place as we peek into this parable and the drama as it plays out before us. Reveal something that challenges our assumptions about this story. Make it new, so that its unfolding teaches us and helps us to grow. Amen. I told the 9.30 hour that um, I uh, invited you to bring your whole selves to worship, and I'm doing the same with my cold and my Kleenex, so um, bear with me The classroom was dimly lit. The professor placed up on a screen an image of Rembrandt's painting depicting this parable of the son returning home to the father. The instruction, ponder this painting for several minutes. And as you ponder, imagine where you are in the painting. There was powerful music that expressed emotion and feeling in the background, and it became the soundtrack to this experience. And with only a piece of notebook paper and a pen before me, this was long before laptops in every class and typing everything, I began to wonder and write. The professor must have modeled this experience after author Henry Nowen's encounter with this painting. He wrote a whole book about it. The painting he saw was first a poster, and then he saw the real painting, the original. And he sat there for over four hours on red velvet tufted chairs and on heat registers to stare at this painting, to see the light change, to see new parts of the image that were highlighted as that happened, and to observe the artist's attention to detail. So, for that next 20 minutes or so, there was nothing but me and the story and the painting. As I wondered who I might be in it Am I the younger child? The eldest brother? The servant relaying information? A bystander? An attender at the party? The loving parent? It has been over a decade ago since this moment, but the experience has stayed with me, not for the product that it produced on the paper, but for the experience of being still as I approached the story, for the experience of staring and wondering and looking and imagining myself as a player in it, for the experience of sitting with myself long enough to see how I could be all or none, of these people on this particular journey. There are so many questions, so many things to wonder about, so many threads and thoughts and themes that you could explore in this parable. It reminds me of this climbing apparatus at my elementary school growing up. It wasn't like the dome-shaped climbing pieces that you see on playgrounds today. It was like metal pipe in squares and rectangles, like six or seven feet tall, which is probably why it doesn't exist anymore. Um, And it was castle-like almost. It could be a castle, but it could also be a boat or a lookout or a fort because you could climb through all of those squares and go to all the corners of this apparatus, and you could perch from various views and see things from all of the different perspectives. I'm reminded that the parables of Jesus are built this way. Like layers of an onion, they unfold to us again and again as we approach them in new ways each time. Meant to convey a moral or religious lesson through story, parables become like my aunt's ornately and exquisitely wrapped holiday gifts, making one wonder with curiosity and eagerness what is going to be inside. That said, as we say in Godly Play, we need to be ready to approach a parable so that we don't break it. To ask ourselves, what lens am I looking through as I draw close to it? What is going on in my world, particularly this week, that is affecting my approach? Is it the promise of spring break and a breath from the usual rhythm and the race of the everyday? Is it vast existential angst and worry about the future, whether mine or my family's, the health of the planet, the country? Is it the running massive to-do list in my head? Is it weariness over the length of the journey of Lent that requires courage to press on? Is it the familiarity of the story of this man and his two sons, and how could there possibly be something new in it again? Is it that I'm ready to come to the parable, but this just is not the time for this parable to unfold itself for me in a new way? It could be one of these, none of these, or some combination of all of them that are my approach. The answer matters less than the reality that I have made space to wonder about the lens through which only I see. And so where do we begin? There are so many possible entry points. Like picking up and trying on a series of Warby Parker frames before committing to the one that seems to be the best overall fit and look for you. It seems to me that there are varying frames beyond my specific lens by which to observe this parable in order to be faithful to it. And only then can we wonder about what it says to me or to us. First, there's the frame of the audience. Who is Jesus speaking to? These first verses reveal that tax collectors and sinners have drawn near as Jesus is speaking And Pharisees and scribes are vocally scoffing at Jesus' interaction with these people, including his willingness to eat with them. Tax collectors were thought very poorly of, as they could collect more taxes than what was due the government without consequence. Sinners were people who had broken the Mosaic law, the religious expectation, and so had been excluded from the synagogue, which was the center of life. By all accounts, these people were considered outcasts on the margins of society. And Jesus welcomed them and even ate with them. That Jesus would even entertain such a thing as table fellowship with outcasts was radical. For who you ate with marked your identity. It told others something about you in a culture that was at threat of losing its identity by way of other empires and regimes. Fred Craddock writes that when the critics say of Jesus that he eats with anyone, they are saying that he violates the sacred distinctions as to who is and who is not within the covenant fellowship. That Jesus included everyone in that fellowship was unthinkable. And so as tax collectors and sinners drew near and as Pharisees and scribes complained, Jesus tells a series of parables, including this one. Then there's the frame of scripture, the text. This particular parable is the third in a trio of parables. The first one is about a lost sheep and the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one and rejoices upon the finding of it. The second parable is about a widow who loses a coin. She sweeps and searches and when she finds it, she's overjoyed and she calls her friends and says we have to celebrate. Both of these involve someone losing an important object to them and finding it and being overjoyed. But this third and last is about what is lost between people in discordant relationship the dissonance that is waiting for hopeful restoration while grieving the reality that is and the celebration of resolution and harmony and reconciliation. In this parable, the sadness is more sorrowful, the length of time and the waiting is greater, and the celebration is more exuberant. Next, There's the frame that encompasses all of the characters. And on the surface, I think it seems kind of obvious. A man had two sons, the text says. And without reading any further, if you've never heard this parable before in your life, we can begin to imagine at least some of the plot and where this is going to go. There will be sibling jealousy, and there will be some dissonance or discord between the parent and the child. Perhaps two of the most universal experiences of family, of family life, although this parable arguably takes it to a new level. And of course, the parable starts at home, the place that grounds us, the place or people from which we go and to which we return There's a familiar song lyric now emblazoned in painted script on wooden wall signs everywhere that describes home as wherever I am with you. Even as an adult returning to the home of my childhood, sleeping in the same room where I grew up and falling asleep to the sound of the rain running through the gutter, lulling me to sleep, is a place of deep peace and restorative rest. That being said... While home ought to be a place of welcome and respite and refuge, we also know, whether in reality or in concept, that home isn't always idyllic, as it is made up of imperfect humans in relationship with other imperfect humans. And so we meet the father, set in the thick of his cultural context, whose life is about caring for family and property and following religious expectations. We meet the younger son, audacious at best and foolish at worst, focused most on his own desires and willing them into being. We meet the elder son, faithful at best and resentful at worst, focused most on doing the correct and acceptable thing and what is expected of him. This triangular set of interactions between father and eldest and youngest allows us to see each character carefully as their lives and emotions and actions affect one another. Then there's the frame of the story that focuses on confession. I wish I knew what was going through that father's mind when he said yes to dividing that property. What was he thinking? Was it trust? Was it hope? Was it the exasperation and weariness of cumulative past encounters with his son? Was there a spouse at home saying, What on earth have you done? Was it a gut reaction waded through and felt in the moment? We can't know the reasons behind the father's agreement to giving his son the third of the property that should have only been given after his father's death. But we can certainly imagine the weight of his sadness and grief laced with anger and frustration, all based in love, as he watched his son take the land, sell it, turn it into cash, grab the spoils of that decision, and leave home. The story soon reveals that this youngest son loses all of his money in wasteful and reckless prodigal ways and finds himself signing on to work with pigs to survive during a famine. Pigs were unacceptable in Jewish culture and law, and so the fact that he finds himself in this place after losing everything is doubly disconcerting. And here is where he begins contemplating confession. As destitute and hungry, he realizes he'd be better off at home as a hired hand. Now, to be clear, one must be careful with texts like this, lest we break the parable. Because although it can be assumed, it bears being said, one does not consider a return home if there is danger waiting there. However, from the grounding of a safe home, from whence you chose to leave, vulnerably considering returning home, owning the depth of your losses and missteps and mistakes, recognizing that your actions were so brazen and foolish that you planned to ask your father not to even see you as a son, that's pretty stark. And the risk of rejection is actually possible. And yet this youngest son chooses to go. The next time we see the father, it's as if he's been waiting by the window watching every day. Leaving the candle burning every night just in case. He cannot go get his son for he knows not where he has gone. And where would the lesson be in that anyway? So, when he sees this figure off in the distance, his eyes squint to see who is coming. Is it a neighbor? My eldest coming in from the field? The wondering, is it? No, it couldn't be. The heart pounding, maybe. And as step after weary step continues, the figure takes the shape of his clearly hungry beloved child the relief, the tears, the joy, the relief. Before the parent knows it, his feet are moving, not just walking, but racing to this one who has come home to him, who is home to him. He hugs his son, kisses his son. The assurance of love comes even before the confession. The son still gets out the words, Dad, I messed up really bad this time. I don't deserve to come home. You shouldn't call me son anymore. The father barely hears them because the joy at the presence of this beloved human is all that matters. Whatever has been done can be sorted out later. And so he calls for celebration, robes and rings and sandals and a feast. And why? Because absence is death. And presence is life. This son was lost from his family, from his father, from his home, arguably by his own choices, and somehow, some way, he found himself and so found his way home. The next time we see the father, he's once again going out of his way to reach his son. This time, it's his eldest, who refuses to come inside to celebrate. The oldest son is angry, and his father pleads with him to join them. But the child won't hear of it. He has stayed home. He has worked hard. He has followed the rules and was not audacious or foolish. It is a much different confession, but a confession nonetheless. And it is not one of humility, but of frustration and anger. For his observation of his father's favor for his brother in this moment is being interpreted as the eldest being taken for granted and being less loved, less honored, and less favored. I imagine the father's shoulders internally, maybe externally, slumping with heaviness as he realizes what his son cannot yet fully know or comprehend and says, all that is mine is yours. And finally, there's this frame that is assurance and grace. Did you catch it? The father's love doesn't have the quality of a seesaw bouncing back and forth as weight shifts from side to side. In an act of gravitational defiance, the father stands right in the center, leveling the teetering apparatus so that a massive celebration for the youngest son doesn't outweigh the place and love of the eldest son in the system of all the things. A party for one son's return doesn't equal less love for he who stayed faithfully by his side. He simultaneously juxtaposes one child's outsized assumption of agency and one's assumed lack of agency and levels the field. All are welcome with me. You are both my children. But you had better bet that the one who I haven't laid eyes on in months, whom my heart had grieved as dead, is going to get my attention for a while in a big, big way. For if to be a prodigal is to be reckless and extravagant, then perhaps the father is the only prodigal in this moment, giving what is seemingly reckless and extravagant love. And so having looked through many of the frames... We return to the wondering I and we encounter when we look at a painting of all of these characters. Could I be the father? Courageous enough to actually say okay to my son's request? Restrained enough to let him do what he will with his part no matter how he chooses to move forward? Facing the consequences of his own actions? Faithful enough To still wait by the window, candle burning, hoping my child will trust my love enough to come home. Filled with love enough to offer it prodigally, extravagantly, and recklessly when my child appears in the distance, worn from the experience of having lost his way. Could I be the younger son? Demanding and direct and selfish and asking for something now that shouldn't be mine yet? Squandering my family's hard earned resources with nothing to show for it? Trusting my ability to go it alone rather than the wisdom of the community's practices? Desperate and hungry and alone. Willing to be vulnerable and take a chance on confession resulting in mercy. Willing to accept lavish grace. Could I be the elder son? Following the expected trajectory of my life and not fearing from that expectation. Doing that which is right and honorable and feeling confident in that path. Jealous of my sibling's bolder spirit, even though I think this particular action is completely wrong. Angry and resentful that my father is throwing a party for this brother of mine who has made every mistake in the book without so much as a disapproving glare or measure of consequence willing and able to trust my father's insistence that I am just as honored and just as loved as my brother by him, party or no party, goat or no goat. Could I become more like Jesus, calling others into a more expansive understanding of God's table, recognizing and inviting and including, giving radical and extravagant grace? Could I be the Pharisees or the scribes, included fully by Jesus, but equally frustrated by him and frustrating to him? Trying to hold on to that which is sacred and being faithful, and yet just missing the mark. Hearing, but not fully understanding. Could I be the tax collector or the sinner? Excluded by those towing the line of the status quo, but miraculously included by this Jesus who corrects and calls and yet sees beyond? Receiving the love of this one who loves me more than the existing boundaries that define whether I should be loved or not? And so the parable opens up to us. And we sit within it as the music swells and lingers in the dissonant place and resolves. The frames merge with our unique lens. We rest our pen on the desk with new, multi-angled perspective and return with wonder to the courageous, dare I say prodigal, journey That is ours to take. Amen.